0: Today on Against the Grain. Work changed dramatically during the COVID pandemic. Enormous numbers of people lost their jobs while others were able to work remotely. And then there were the so-called essential workers whose in-person jobs put them at the highest risk. In response, many of them organized, often informally. Sociologist Jamie McCallum argues that the struggles of essential workers during the pandemic fed into a wave of labor organizing since then. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. How do you organize when you're often risking your life to perform your job? That was the question many frontline workers had to face during the COVID pandemic, when their already precarious jobs became increasingly dangerous. In Essential, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for Worker Justice, which is published by Basic Books, Jamie McCallum examines their responses, organizing themselves under dire circumstances with much of it uncounted by government labor statistics. He teaches sociology at Middlebury College. Jamie, it wasn't so long ago, but I wonder if you could take us back to the lockdowns at the beginning of the pandemic How would you characterize what happened to different groups of workers at that time?
1: So at the time that the pandemic began moving out of China and into Italy, for example, I was teaching a class called the sociology of labor, and my students began, we began to wonder if it was going to affect labor issues (laughs) and employment. And um, so we started thinking about it and I began interviewing people. So if you think about the way the crisis unfolded, we had three sort of main groups. You had people who lost their job in the immediate crash, you had people who were transitioned to working from home, and you had people who were staffing essential work sites. The beginning of my book talks about the first two to some extent, and the rest of the book talks about essential workers, but that's sort of how I sort of saw the breakdown of how different people were impacted immediately.
0: And which jobs were deemed essential, and how were those definitions reached?
1: You know, obviously a lot of us are familiar with the kinds of folks who we came into contact as essential workers, in other words, healthcare workers, logistics uh, people and delivery drivers, food. Uh, prep and retail workers, things things like that. There were other people in energy, technology, uh, waste management, who sometimes we don't think about as much. And then there were people like teachers who were occasionally in or occasionally out, depending on what the school closure situation looked like. Beyond that, and those are, you know, there are there are government designations that deem certain groups of people as necessary to... The maintenance of a thriving economy and public health and well-being, and then, but what got really interesting pretty quick is that what the people who were deemed essential was pretty capricious. So I interviewed people who were fast food workers, and people thought of as though they were working. They they did not sort of treat them with the kind of respect that essential workers. Uh, often got from the public very early on, but in their roles as caretakers or home care providers, they were deemed essential by the public. And then there were jobs that lobbied for, or businesses that lobbied for their work staff to be considered essential, who were doing clearly not essential work, like staffing some uh, shops or stores that did not sell essential products. Um, There were... You know, people like like greeters at Walmart were deemed essential and clearly there's no reason why someone has to say welcome to Walmart every time you walk in the store in the middle, of, in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, even in some places, it varied state to state widely, like in Montana, um, elite fly fishing guides were deemed essential and many of them never stopped working throughout the pandemic. And so there was a pretty significant I think, subjective dimension to who counted as essential and and who didn't.
0: What risks were essential workers
1: taking? People risked their lives. We don't don't know, and we'll never know probably, how many essential workers caught COVID on the job and died from it. We don't know this because the CDC did not collect data on people's occupation. and so, but it is, it is clear that some people did. So we, we do know it for some healthcare workers, for nurses, nursing home workers. Um, there was some data early on about meatpacking workers and they were um, dying or becoming seriously ill. They were also then infecting their extended families, networks, some of whom also died and became exceptionally ill. So people definitely faced that threat. The other thing was obviously, between the the economic crisis and the virus, you had people who faced the ultimate decision, like your life or your livelihood. And some people who were deemed essential workers um, did not go to work out of fear of catching the virus and and becoming really sick. And so those people risked their livelihood. And sometimes um, when you sort of quote unquote opted, not to go to work, like you lost your job, you lost your health care, you lost things that come with it. You know, the stats show that only about two or three million people lost health care in, you know, from March to June of 2020. That's actually a kind of a low number. It's in the millions, but it's still low. But that doesn't account for the fact that, you know, 10 million people didn't have health insurance to begin with, for example. So you had a situation where, you know, a significant portion of the American working class was facing down a deadly virus, which no one knew how to cure. No one even knew really how it spread early on. And they didn't have basic protections. So the risks were pretty severe. And I think that's obviously one of the reasons th- those health risks were the early impetus for the essential worker movement.
0: While, on the one hand, the larger public celebrated essential workers like, nurses you know going to work in these terrible conditions on the other hand it seemed that often the risks that essential workers were taking was hidden from view one thing that comes to mind is how a lot of people thought that a way to help limit the spread was to stop going to restaurants and to order takeout food and yet it turned out that one of the most dangerous jobs was working in an enclosed kitchen as a cook. Um, But that, you know, was not something that was really discussed at all.
1: So one interesting thing is that, which I think someone should do really, really deep research on this, um, that the threat and the fear that essential workers often reported was probably a pretty good barometer for the actual threat. And I think that's something that we didn't really appreciate early on. Like, for example, the Harvard School of Public Health did research that showed that um, when workers like filed an OSHA claim about workplace unsafety or lack of PPE or whatever it was, about two weeks later that was correlated with an outbreak at that work site, which meant like they were they were right. In other words, and there was plenty of workers who who said this constantly, who said, Look, I I, I you know, I don't have the proper PPE, I don't have sick leave, I don't have time off, I don't have, uh, you know, sort of sneeze guards at my work site, whatever it is. And um, very often, I think those things, you know, those fears turned out to be true. And one thing that was really lacking during the pandemic, especially the first year, was an adequate government response. I mean, OSHA basically just either didn't or couldn't do its job, depending on how you see things. And so for that reason, a lot of, you know, workplaces turn, workers turn to each other to figure out how to keep each other safe.
0: Low paid service work tends not to be an area of the economy that is highly unionized. Uh, Union rates are pretty low in the economy as a whole, but did working conditions differ during COVID for those workers lucky enough to have a union?
1: It's a great question. So I did um, a couple surveys in a couple different states across the country. Other people did surveys that sh- basically all those things show that, you know, workers with unions had better access to PPE, better paid sick time, uh, more ability to call off um, higher wages which kept them from working multiple jobs, um, those kinds of benefits. So there was a huge union difference for workers that had unions and workers that don't. Obviously, most do not. I mean, right now we're about 10% of the American workforce that has a union. And um, in certain industries, it made uh, like a life or death difference. You know, so I can, I'll say a little bit about the research that I did with a group, of, a group of other faculty members and medical doctors that showed that in nursing homes, for example, where workers had unions, residents were much less likely to die of COVID, I think about 10 or 11% less likely to die from COVID during the pandemic, and workers um, who were unionized were less likely to be infected from COVID. And a lot, a lot of that comes down to just basic things. Again, having access to PPE early on, masks, gloves, respirators, having access to paid sick time. Um, you know, most workers that I spoke with who worked in healthcare at some point during their interview, you know, often broke down because they knew that they were spreading the virus, either from room to room or, or facility to facility. If they were working multiple jobs and that, you know, added heartbreak to the to the stuff they were seeing and then the dangers they faced at work. And so I think the union difference can't really be, um, you know, overestimated in a way.
0: I'm speaking with sociologist Jamie McCallum about his book Essential, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for Worker Justice. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So let's a step back for a moment, and I want to ask you about where did these jobs come from, these jobs that were deemed essential, many of which were in the service sector. Obviously, service jobs are nothing new, but how did they increase in the period following the Great Recession of 2008?
1: The book starts there. In, in at the Great Recession, which is sort of odd <laughs> for some people. But I, the point was to show that in some ways essential workers um, didn't just come from nowhere. They're not just a product of the pandemic. So basically this, the story there is that when the crisis happened 2007, 2008, 2009, that during those years, um, the recovery from that crisis was peculiar. And basically what happened is there was sort of an hourglass type recovery. In other words, there were, we, many of the sort of middle paying, middle skilled middle-class jobs that were lost during the crisis, uh, came back with a second life as low wage jobs. Some came back as, you know, we, were, so we we grew some high-scale tech jobs as well. But for the most part, um, we, you know, developed um, a, an over-reliance on a low-wage service economy following that crisis. So if you remember, you know, the crisis was not let's say, 2008, uh, Uber, TaskRabbit, um, Lyft, all those kinds of gig economy companies that were, uh, you know, were born in 2009, 2010, 2011. They all require a pool of unemployed or precariously employed people willing to work for low wages. And that's what we had all of a sudden. So to some extent, you can trace the rise of the service, like the recent rise of the servant economy to the period following that time. So during the pandemic, those workers who had been in those jobs, you know, which before the crisis were actually doing like a little bit, before the pandemic were doing okay. Like wages began to creep up, unemployment was low. And um, this thing, you know, obviously really, really knocked us back quite a while. And so some of those service sector workers became unemployed and some of them um, ended up in essential workplaces. There was an interesting sort of map or cartography to that difference too. And that is that gig economy and service sector employees, like in richer neighborhoods or who were employed by a richer clientele or a higher income clientele, lost their jobs at higher rates. To some extent, those people tend to employ more types of workers who are sort of deemed more easily disposable, in other words, a barrage of personal chefs or dog walkers or personal massage therapists or whatever it may be. And, um, and so there was, a, there was a, a sort of a difference there to some extent about how those uh, service sector workers were, were laid off or kept their jobs, but certainly the root of the growth of the essential working class um, has some roots in the, in the Great Recession.
0: And then if we were to take it back further into the 20th century, how would you see the trajectory of work that is at its heart precarious?
1: Depends how far you want to go back. But if you could imagine um, a situation in which, you know, following the Second World War, people's like, let's say a middle class, the fortunes of the middle class, begin to solidify and prosper and take hold and become sort of a general expectation, including for black families. Um, you know, that, that scenario proceeds apace. People sometimes refer to the great compression at a time when wages at the top and wages at the bottom began to you know, not get super close but come closer together. And to some extent, a lot of that is thanks to, you know, at the time, you know, a third of Americans were union members and had union protections and union wages and union security, all those things. In the 70s, early 70s, to early 80s, those things began to unravel very quickly. Um, unions came under attack. Corporations fought back against high wages. The hours of labor began to expand exponentially and wages stayed flat. That... Process is sort of what gives us the widening chasm of inequality that the Occupy Wall Street movement was carrying out. I mean, profits, you know, kept going up; wages stayed flat. Um, the cost of living rose; the minimum wage did not. And you know, you get a general picture in which some people got rich by higher salaries, and other people got got you know stayed the same just by working longer hours. And so, when the Great Recession did hit. Um, the you know American working class was already sort of in the midst of an upheaval, uh, an upheaval to begin with.
0: And we'll of course talk about all the elements and things that took place during the pandemic over labor struggles. But since you've just traced that trajectory of precarious work from the mid 20th century and people needing to take on more jobs just to be able to get by. And then during the Great Recession, the transformation of some jobs that had been more secure and better paid into more contingent, low-paid work. Uh, What would you say is the state of this kind of work now? If we can say it's partially post-pandemic, however one
1: could characterize it. So the book talks a lot about things that changed. And however, I, I do think it's important to consider the fact that a whole lot also did not change. And that may be the most dispiriting outcome of the pandemic. And I say that just because um, a lot of the jobs that were bad before the pandemic that became essential jobs that we all relied on for our literal survival where there was public outpouring of support for them, where there was promises from politicians um, about them, it didn't really materialize. And so, you know, you can take, for example, let's say home care. Um, home care labor is one of the fastest growing sectors in the economy. Uh, it was vital to keep people alive during the pandemic. People were moved out of nursing homes and hospitals and into hospice and home care. Those workers, you know, if there's any heroes from 2020, it's them. And yet those jobs pay on average $12 an hour. And the hours are often very long or very short. People either have too much or not enough. Uh, Government protections that were supposed to come to uh, rescue some of that sector haven't really materialized. So that, um, you know that is one way to tell the story of like where things are now, I suppose. The other way to look at it would be to say that um, if you're not talking just about essential workers, you know, work from home, the work from home sort of revolution has transformed the way white collar labor is conducted and I think that does really matter. It also has implications for how service sector workers do their jobs because service sector workers during the workday often serve office buildings, and if those people are working from home, well, they're not doing that then. So there's some relationship there. The other thing that's changed um, about the sort of composition of the labor force is that is that we lost tons of jobs. That didn't, that didn't fully bounce back. So leisure and hospitality is a great example. That was the sector hardest hit by the pandemic. Those are mostly um, low-skilled jobs in a largely non-unionized industry. Um, and those jobs were the most, they suffered the largest layoffs. And in some ways, you know, they've, they've bounced back now to I think about 80% of their former capacity we've recovered about 90% of our child care capacity and 85% of our elder care capacity what that means is that we're getting close to where things were before the pandemic but there are still you know tens of thousands of like missing workers from sectors that are really really important and i think you know the sort of the general public is feeling that missing on a day-to-day basis
0: indeed Well, let's talk about what happened during the pandemic for these workers, these essential workers, uh, many of whom you interviewed in the course of writing your book. You describe a shift in consciousness that took place. Now, America is a, a society where, although there are venerable traditions of unionization, there is a prevailing ideology which is propagated from on high that's very hostile to unions hostile to more broadly class consciousness. How did the consciousness of essential workers shift during the pandemic and what came out of that shift?
1: In the book, I talk about a general process that scholars call class formation. In other words, a way in which a group of people come to understand themselves as having common bonds and common goals and common aspirations in relation to another group. So, as you said, America is, you know, often seems like lower or whatever in, in working class consciousness than say, parts of Europe or parts of um, Latin America. Uh, but in general, I think during the, during the crisis, the pandemic, a number of things transpired to, to change that. One of the obvious ones was that, you know, workers were like the only ones, like essential workers were the only people like continually in public during the pandemic. And they were, they were effectively like the people and sort of as a, almost a populist idiom for the people. And I think they really understood that in a way that was not siloed by occupation and not as cleaved by race or income or status occupation. So I'll give you an example. And that is that it's typical, you know, we typically, when we typically think of, you know, working class people in America sort of having a degree of consciousness, we often refer to it as, well, this strike happened in steel, or there was an auto worker strike or a, or a hospital worker strike. In during the pandemic, there was a a degree of class consciousness that happened across the essential working class. So in my interviews, people routinely referred to uh, nurses and retail workers and delivery drivers and meatpacking workers and um, sometimes cops and firefighters as like together, as a unified entity. They understood each other. They, you know, um, I talked to retail clerks Used to say that they wouldn't charge uh, nurses for some options when they would scan their stuff through at the glo- at the grocery store because they sort of recognized, you know, them as ha- making a similar sacrifice. Um, at other times, you know, nurses said that when other essential workers showed up in the ER with COVID and were in danger, um, you know, like people gave them special treatment, and so there were very real material ways. In which workers took care of each other, and they faced a common threat, and that you know to some extent drove um, a kind of working class consciousness. The other thing, the other reason that happened, I think, is because to some extent it was constructed by the public at large. Like, rarely do does the does the American public to such a great extent have long conversations about the American working class, and we did during this time. Like we talked about, the issues facing essential workers were of importance of national security and our health and well-being. And so therefore, they took on sort of a larger-than-life quality. And I think the public outpouring of support was really important also for workers sort of having the fortitude to sort of stand up and look at each other and be like, actually, we are, there is something to this we do have something in common, we're stronger together, just strengthen unity. The idea of a hospital workplace where doctors and janitors and nurses and LPNs and orderlies and ambulance drivers like work together really collaboratively, that doesn't always happen. But during the pandemic, there was kind of like an injury to one as an injury to all idea. And I think that was you know really significant.
0: Jamie McCallum, is my guest. He's professor of sociology at Middlebury College. We're discussing his most recent book, Essential, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for Worker Justice, and you can find a link to that book on our website, againstthegrain.org. He's also the author of Worked Over, about which we spoke with him in a previous program, and Global Union's Local Power. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So I wanted to ask you, Jamie, about the ways that people started organizing. One of the key struggles or areas of struggle was over the question of safety. What did those sorts of struggles look like?
1: So the typical thing that people like me use to understand how what's going on in the economy in terms of like worker unrest or however you want to phrase it, is the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And if you look at that data for 2020, it shows that almost nothing was happening. They recorded eight strikes in 2020, which is on par with the lowest level in a half century. And so, you know, on the one hand you say, well, okay, a lot of people weren't working. And then a lot of people weren't working in person, and it's hard to organize when you're not doing those things. And but what I began to find, so when I talk to people on the phone during interviews, if we set up to talk about something else, let's say something about their job, they would mention offhandedly very often, "Oh, there was a a walkout yesterday," or "Oh, there was a, there was a strike at our place and the place down the street," or "There was a protest of us and teachers and." Uber drivers and Amazon workers. So the picture you began or I began to get was that there was all this activity bubbling up from below, sometimes in small bits, sometimes very quietly, very often without a union, about a third of the strikes in 2020 were led by workers without union representation. And so it was a labor movement that was very unmoored from the kinds of labor bureaucracy or uh, sort of institutionalized labor hierarchy that we're accustomed to hearing about.
0: And also for the uh, activity to be measured by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, wouldn't there have had to be a threshold in terms of numbers for an activity to be registered in their count?
1: Right. They count large strikes. So those, so, so large strikes are a thousand um, or more but there was a lot of large strikes in 2018, 2019, for example, during the teachers' strike wave. The Bureau of Labor Statistics used to count smaller strikes, but they don't do that count anymore. And, you know, there were some very large and long strikes that didn't make their count. So, for example, there was a strike at a hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts, that lasted almost a year. But because it involved something like 700 to 800 workers, it did not make the 1,000 you know, count threshold. The point is that I think there was stuff happening, but to some extent it, it wasn't being caught up in the official story. So
0: if you can then generalize, given the inconsistency of the collection of data, let's just say, what did the actions that took place tend to focus on? as far as you can tell.
1: As we mentioned earlier, you know workplace safety was the most significant, immediate reason for workers to take action in 2020. The Amazon labor movement, which when I first started talking to people about it was a long shot and is now one of the most interesting things in labor, um, obviously happened as a result of people pushing back against unsafe working conditions. That was the same in health care, was the same in meatpacking. It was the same in education and retail. The thing I think that's important to remember is that, you know, workplace safety concerns aren't totally separate from other concerns. So for example, a major health impediment during the pandemic was, do you work in multiple jobs, for example? And if your nursing home pays you $9 an hour, well, you're more likely to work in multiple homes. If your nursing home pays you $22 an hour, you're less likely to. So higher wages was a workplace safety concern. Better paid sick leave, paid time off, a voice on the job were all worker safety concerns. You know, the, the data also showed that like workers who have a union are far more likely to speak up about workplace hazards and dangers and illnesses on the workplace because they have less fear of being retaliated against or fired for calling out problems at work. And so there's a way in which so many of the general concerns that unions have normally ended up being, you know, critical to workplace safety and health, especially during the first year and a half of the pandemic.
0: What about people quitting in response to their Situations. There's been a lot that's been said about labor shortages during and coming out of the pandemic. All sorts of assumptions have been made by the media, anyway, about people, you know, not wanting to take jobs because they can collect benefits, or at least in the past that had been a, a thing. How do you understand this question of a labor shortage from the vantage point of the kind of organized action by? The most precarious workers.
1: So, the, the labor shortage, or whatever you want to call it, was possibly the, the, the most interesting lasting thread to come out of this because you can look at it from so many angles. Basically, the way I look at it is that we have a surplus of bad jobs, and we have a surplus of jobs that don't attract enough workers to staff the industries that are essential to our health. So, for example you can imagine a world in which we had let's say a socialist economy and it did not employ enough nurses to take care of sick people you can imagine the the outcry from all kinds of people who would say this you know this 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 system does not even take care of our health well we have that system now right that like capitalism short changes us and it short changes workers and, and in return the general, you know, everyone gets a bad deal. And so I think one of the driving factors of the labor shortage um, in the, you know, in the wake of the pandemic is the fact that there is some resistance to going back to incredibly lousy, low paying, like drudge work. um, And that as a response to that sort of tightening of the labor market, employers have raised wages in certain sectors. The other point driving the labor shortage today, I think, is the continued crisis of care. If you, you know, if, you, if you want to understand the labor shortage, one way to think about it is to go to the census. The census asks you every week why they ask thousands of people why they didn't go to work that week. And you can just read their responses. And when you add them up, the number of people saying I didn't feel like it is very small compared to the number of people who say I was caring for a loved one, I was caring for a sick person, I was caring for a child, I was caring for myself, whatever it is, um, that keep people out of work. And so we still have an economy which you know, doesn't necessarily afford a lot of people, especially women, um, to get back into the workforce. And that is still you know, a driving factor of that today.
0: Is there any evidence that one of the things that has led to increased wages coming out of the pandemic, at least in some sectors, has to do with actions that were taken by essential workers during the pandemic?
1: Sure. Labor organizing has a spillover effect. It's pretty easily documented that when one group of workers organizes Even if they don't win a contract, employers in the same industry or nearby industries or in adjacent labor markets raise wages to limit the idea that their workers will organize in turn. So the organizing wave that's happened, you know, petitions to file union elections are up more than 60% um, in the last year and a half, which is pretty remarkable. Like the National Labor Relations Board can't even process the number of elections that are happening quickly enough. And so there have been, you know, those actions to improve job quality and improve workers' voice in the job and increase union representation and power have have pushed conditions up and wages up. The real test is whether or not those workers will win a contract and will really solidify their gains that that they can really build on or whether there will be Uh, backsliding, in which case employers can take advantage of that of that moment too.
0: put it all in context for us. So you've been describing how when the lockdown started, essential workers obviously were put in a particularly crucial position under incredibly high levels of risk and some of those workers organized and some of those workers pushed back. And we probably won't ever know the extent to which that took place. Then in 2022, you have this upsurge of labor organizing. But of course, struggles for precarious low paid workers in the service sector are not new. And we have seen in the past decade, organizing going on. So can you situate these struggles the highs and lows of the recent years in that longer stretch of organizing around service work?
1: So, you know, one thing that is really important to remember is that the heart of the essential worker labor movement was very much driven by workers themselves, like not union staffers or not political progressives or whatever, like the extent to which those people even had access to union work sites during the pandemic or any work sites was pretty limited, um, especially early on. And so there was a real democratic um, and grassroots movement that took shape. There are some, you know, sectors of American labor organizing where that is the norm and others where that is obviously less the norm. But I think that overall that sort of democratic spirit and that sort of militant grassroots spirit has filtered out and affected the labor movement as a whole. You know, today you routinely see large or very significant labor leaders, like referring to the victories at Amazon and referring to the victories at Starbucks and some of the grad student organizing as being really significant. And that, that is um, a really important development because I think it does represent like a new kind of spirit of, of, of labor organizing, a more worker-driven one, a more democratic one, a more bottom-up one. Um, it's also like by this, the other side of that coin is that sometimes it means it's more precarious And sometimes it means the campaigns are um, possibly like more difficult to keep going. They may require like more fuel to be continually added, less institutional backing, stuff like that. So I think there's a real upside and a risk um, to some of that. The other thing I would say is that the pandemic Sort of essential workers, labor movement, or whatever you want to call it, um, did capture the imagination of the public and some political leaders more than it had in the past. Public support for unions is at its highest it's ever been, and public lack of support for large corporations is also at the lowest it's been in in a, in a few decades. And so, I think you know there is widespread support. For some, even you know, milk toast social democratic reforms, um, which were, you know, less on the table before the pandemic. And I guess the way to sum it up would be to say that the, you know, organizing at your workplace became a solution to so many different kinds of problems during the pandemic in a way that it really wasn't before. And people were like, low wages, organize. Um, you're oh no, no sick days organize people are dying at your work site, organize a union like that became a pretty common refrain and a pretty um understandable one to a lot of people, and I think that change is really is really important.
0: I'm speaking with sociologist Jamie McCallum, We're talking about his book, Essential. You've been describing the kind of workplace organizing that took place during the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic. At the same time as the center of the pandemic, we also saw in this country the largest social protest movements in US history around the police killing of George Floyd and others. And of course, essential workers are disproportionately workers of color and women. Do you see a connection between that upsurge around police brutality, police killings, and self-awareness and organizing of essential workers at the workplace?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you said, the essential working class is more black and brown than even the sort of otherwise working class um, would be. And so there were, you know, and leaders of the essential workers movement, you know, just to take Chris Smalls as an example from Amazon, were also leaders in Black Lives Matter. And there was a lot of cross-pollination between racial justice struggles and workplace struggles. People understood that essential workers were dying because they were being sacrificed at low-wage employers. And one of the reasons that allowed them to be sacrificed as such was because they were Black. And that, um, that was clear to people. And I think that animated a lot of the unrest that happened. In particular, the moment you're pointing out in the summer of 2020, um, the, other th- the other way that sort of black workers took part in those demonstrations or sort of joined them was the, was the, other, way- the other side of the essential issue, and that they were unemployed and that they were kicked out of the labor force. And, um, you know, some of the pandemic welfare state stuff was good, but, you know, this is America, like even at our best, it's not that good. And so there was a lot of animosity and frustration and resentment by unemployed workers, especially unemployed black workers. And so I think, you know, more than in recent history, there was a, you know, labor movement ethos inside and outside the workplace. Like Black Lives Matter began talking about like the strike for black lives, like using the language of labor in the streets and black workers um, you know like at work sites and within their unions like turn people out to those demonstrations. So I think it's an obvious moment where we can see some degree of collaboration there. The history of the American Labor Movement collaborating with the Black Freedom Movement is bad. In other words, it hasn't happened to a large extent, either because of internal racism or because of poor strategy by labor organizers. But I think this is this is one moment when that when it really did did work.
0: Uh, in taking stock of what happened during the pandemic and where things are at now. You write that the struggles of essential workers of have crucial low-paid service workers comes in a much larger context of a a crisis of let's just call it a crisis of care how would you define that crisis and what are the implications for the fortunes of these workers
1: if you think of like the future of work people this is a common phrase that people use you know every tech place in america has some thing to say about the future of work and what they often Mean is shiny tech offices with futuristic devices and self-driving cars and whatnot. In in fact, the future of work is um, like low-wage healthcare, largely staffed by at this point anyway by women and women of color, making you know fifteen dollars an hour and, and less. That is the future of work in America. Those are the jobs that are you know slated to grow at the fastest rate. So we have, there's a need to create those jobs. um, And yet there is a pretty significant shortage of people who we can get to work in them. And even when we do get people to work in them, they don't stay like nurses are leaving the bedside in droves today, even after making, you know, higher wages during the pandemic. And to me, what that, what that tells us is that we have an economy that doesn't, it doesn't take care of people. It doesn't provide for the basic needs that people, that people have. It's a structural issue. And I think this was you know, highlighted during the pandemic. The home was turned inside out. It was turned into a workplace for, for some. It was turned into a place of hospice care for other people. And the extent to which we have come to rely on mostly, you know, women to either doing it for free or doing it for someone who's somehow going to profit off it, it's just not, it's not a workable long-term solution. So in the book, I talk about this crisis of care. Some people have called a crisis of social reproduction as a way to sort of theorize what the pandemic was you know, was really revealing.
0: Let me end, Jamie, by asking you about another way. I mean, you're looking into the future and it, it sounds pretty bleak. It's more of the same and maybe intensifying. How do you think the experience of this pandemic and the struggles of workers during it might be able to lead to something different? It's notable that following the Spanish influenza in the 1920s, many countries in Western Europe that had been devastated by Spanish influenza then adopted universal health care. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that one crisis leads automatically to something else without struggle. But do you think that there are, if there are other avenues, and those avenues may have been opened up somewhat by the struggles of these workers and maybe the larger Recognition that we all are harmed when some of us are particularly harmed.
1: That last part definitely, um, you know, labor's old slogan that an injury to one is an injury to all, was like actually very true in a very real way, right? So if you're if you worked in a if you lived in a place where your grocery store workers were more subjected to the, the harshness. Um, a more exploitative labor environment, we're more likely to contract COVID as a result of that. Like you yourself, walking in there once every month to get groceries, were at higher risk. And so, a low-wage um, uh, economy with bad jobs is a liability for everybody. And I think, to some extent, there's some understanding of that popularly. The problem is that, you know, we are still You know if you look to recent struggles like the struggles in the railroads to reach an agreement with railroad workers that problem that sticking point was about sick days like after we just after we just lived through a devastating pandemic when sick days were a very important thing to talk about all of a sudden we're still denying like workers in key absolutely key industries any sick time it's completely and utterly like indefensible. And so on the one hand, there's, there's that sort of like energy that can draw you toward an unoptimistic outlook. The other thing, the other way though, I think, is that, especially if you know where to look, um, what labor did in the fall of 2021, the kind of striketober ac- action, really was to take advantage of the labor shortage crisis and to create an even larger crisis for capital. And so you can look to the, the, you know, moments like, you know, you talk about Spanish flu when in the wake of that, we got something else. Um, we got, you know, let's say, uh, you know, a better healthcare, better sort of social democratic reforms. Um, you could also look to, for example, the 30s when workers on the eve of the on, the, on the sort of wake of the Great Depression, created a real crisis for capital. And the, the left, i.e. the socialist and communist movements, and a nascent labor movement really created a crisis that they could then step into and organize on a scale like we've never seen in this country before. And that's not happening. But there are people who understand that it's the kind of thing that should happen. I think that it is commonly thought that, well, if we can pass the PRO Act, for example, that would make it easier to form a union. If we can pass the PRO Act, then people will join unions. in fact, I think history shows us the opposite, that if we're going to get something as good as the PRO Act, we're going to have to create, we're going to have to organize first and create a crisis large enough to force the state to give us some sort of concession. and. you know, again, that's not happening right now, but there was a very recent time when, or this, we're in the middle of a surge. And I think that that moment has the potential to keep, to keep going and possibly boil over into something. And so I do look, look out on this and see some degree of, of, of optimism out there.
0: Jamie McAllen, thank you for coming back on the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Jamie McCallum is Professor of Sociology at Middlebury College. He is the author of Essential, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for Worker Justice, that's published by Basic Books. And you can find a link to that on our website, as well as events with Jamie McCallum. He's also the author of Worked Over and Global Unions, Local Power. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening and please tune in again next time.